Okay, this morning, we talked about the nature of light. We talked about the different kinds of light. And we mentioned some of the experiments done in the late 1800s, which were without explanation until quantum mechanics came along. We gave you a very brief understanding of quantum mechanics with a model that's incorrect in detail, but correct kind of in broad brush, in which the electron orbits the proton. And with the electron changing energy levels, you get emission lines or absorption lines. Now, if the electron were truly orbiting the atom, it would radiate away energy and fall into the atom. So this model has flaws, but it's easier to kind of get a vision of it than the quantum mechanical model of wave functions. So we call that the Niels Bohr model of the atom, B-O-H-R. He was one of the first Nobel laureates. And this model serves as a good way to have in your head kind of what's going on. So we're now going to continue on what we did. And we're going to talk about how we use light. So the first thing we're going to do is talk about telescopes. Then, as the semester rolls on, we're going to talk about how we learn chemical compositions, how we learn speeds, velocities, how fast stars are moving towards us or away from us, how fast planets are spinning, how we learn chemical compositions. Um, so, you know, light will turn out, of course, since we're astronomers and we can't touch most of the things we're doing, light turns out to be profoundly important. Okay, so the, the PowerPoint is in PDF form on my lecture website. And the first slide shows a whole bunch of different telescopes. The one on the most left is the seven mirror giant Magellan telescope, one with mirrors being made at the mirror lab, expected to go into operation in 2022. The top one is the LBT on Mount Graham, already in current operation. On the right, we have Hubble Space Telescope. On the right middle, we have the 21 inch that you're using for your lab. On the right bottom, we have the James Webb Space Telescope to be flown in October of 2018, of which two members of our department have built instruments. And on the lower left, we have the Arecibo Radio Telescope built in a depression in Puerto Rico, and it's about 1,000 feet across. So the 21 inch, of course, is 21 feet across, which is two feet. And we, um, Mount Graham Telescope is effectively, um, well, 15 meters or so across, and the Giant Magellan Telescope will be 25 meters across. The James Webb Space Telescope is six meters across. That's the size of the eyeball, and that tells you how much light is collected. The bigger the telescope, the more light is collected. Okay, <clears throat> so how do we think about light? As we said today, we can think of light as a particle, as a wave. There's one more idea which is very similar in spirit, which is as, as a ray. And so we can do what we call ray tracing. And a ray is simply a particle or a wave that's moving in a straight line that travels until it hits something. And then it either reflects or refracts or passes through. And we can use that to design um, lenses and mirrors of telescopes. You saw this today, or at least its cousin, the electromagnetic spectrum of which the visible part of the spectrum is a very small part. And we talk about we show the light as a wave in this particular case. We talk about the wavelengths, the size of the wavelengths and something you might be familiar with, the frequency, which is inversely proportional to the wavelength. And 
the energy of every photon, which now we're talking about particles, how we make them on Earth, and what, how we make them in the universe. Okay, the first macroscopic law of light was no, has been known for hundreds of years, um, and so it has nothing to do with an understanding of quantum mechanics, but of course quantum mechanics tells us how it works. But the first law is the law of reflection. So if you have a smooth thing like a mirror, the angle at which the light comes in is the angle at which the light leaves. So sometimes we say the angle of incidence equals the angle of, ref of um, reflection. And you notice this in a car mirror or um, when you're looking in a mirror. You have to tilt the mirror so that you can see the angle, the thing out the back window. Okay, the next picture shows you the same thing except the surface is rough and we call this scattering. Every individual ray here obeys the angle of incidence equals the angle of refraction, but every individual ray has a different angle of incidence because it's a rough surface. We call that scattering and you'll see momentarily um, one thing that you're very familiar with, with scattering. So we can then exploit the angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection to make a mirror that will collect light. Okay, so here's an example of scattering. In a movie screen, it would be really nasty if people in all the different seats saw different things. So they make the, the movie screen, screen rather pebbly and that scatters the light in a whole bunch of different directions, so everybody sees light from all parts of the screen. Um, on the left side of this slide, you see the, the classic picture. The light is coming in at 50 degrees to the perpendicular to the surface, and it leaves at 50 degrees perpendicular to the surface. Okay, so refraction is when light actually passes through an object, and it bends when it passes from one type of object to another. So what we see here is the air-glass interface of, say, the air and your glasses. And light will, so, and the black line, the black horizontal line is what we call the normal to the surface of the glass, perpendicular to the surface of the glass. Light is bent towards the normal as you pass to a more dense medium and we'll be drawing you some pictures, I think, in just a second. So basically what that says in normal human speech is that lenses bend light. Okay, so here's a thought experiment. We're, we're going into the water and then we see a fish. But given that as you leave the water, the light is bent, the fish probably isn't where you think it is. So the question before you move on, or before we move on to the next slide, is should you throw the spear to position A, which is in front of or behind the fish, position B, which is at the fish, or position C, which is in front of the fish? And the answer is you have to throw it in a different place than the, where you think the fish is. So the blue line on the left shows you the light path from the fish to your eye. But of course, you don't see the, the part in the water, so you think the fish is behind where he is. So all fishermen have learned, all spear fishermen have learned to throw the spear in front of the fish. Okay. Now we're going to talk about making an image because, of course, we don't want to just bend light or reflect light. We want to collect more light than the human eye collects. So we want to make an image. So it's not sufficient 
just move the light. We want to make a bigger and brighter image. And so basically, there's some source of light, which we call the object. There's a mirror or a lens, which we call the optical system. And we have an image, which is in the opposite direction. And presumably, we put something there, like a piece of photographic film or your cell phone camera. So the square box, the optics, lenses, and mirrors, is going to take the light coming in, do something to it, and project it onto the detector. Here's an example of a very simple image. This is the lens in your eye. The lens is a very simple lens. Light will travel through the lens, be bent, and make an image on the back of your eye at the retina. The signals on the retina then flow into the optic nerve, which go into your brain. And there's processing at the retina, at the optic nerve, and at the brain. But the important point is the light comes in, passes through the lens, makes an image. And we detect that image with our eyeball. So here's a picture of a simple lens on the top and your eyeball on the bottom. We have incoming light. The light is bent. It comes to a focus at some distance to the right. And it makes actually an upside-down image of what you see on the left. So we use the principle of refraction, or Snell's law, to make light rays from something far away to converge to a focus. And here's a picture. On the left, you see a dog. And on the right, you see a different-sized upside-down dog. And that's what the lens does for you. And of course, you really are seeing upside down, but your brain is very good at inverting it. In fact, you can wear a lens that inverts it one more time, and for a little while, you'll see an upside down world, and then very quickly, your brain will learn to deal with it. OK, well, we don't want to just make an image. We want an image that's in focus. And all we're saying here in this slide is that the lenses in your camera, which are much more complicated than the single lens in your eye, do a very similar thing. And they focus on a silicon-based detector, which we call typically a CCD or a CMOS device. That's what's in your cell phone. That's what's in your digital cameras. OK, now why do we want to build telescopes when we have eyeballs? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Two of them are listed here, and then there's a third one. The third one is that your eyeball cannot take a time exposure, whereas a camera can. But the first and most important thing is a light collecting area. You know, the, if you buy a 12-inch pizza, you get a certain amount of pizza. If you buy a 24-inch pizza, you actually get four times as much pizza. And the area of a pizza goes as the diameter squared. So if you double the diameter of your eyeball, you collect four times as much light. So you can either see something fainter than you can with your eyeball, or you get more photons for an object. And of course, we're going to want to run it through a spectrograph to study the spectrum. So this turns out to be really important. So if you go into a store and you're going to buy a telescope, and they tell you it's a 500 power telescope, that's complete nonsense. That all just depends on the lens you're using. Well, what's important is how much light you collect. So the bigger the telescope, the better. So if you want to see really, really faint galaxies, you need a really big telescope, and you need to expose for a really long time. OK, the second thing is angular resolution. 
a bigger telescope will see finer detail than a smaller telescope. And that's due to the wave nature of light, which I think we'll talk about in the next slide. But the bigger the telescope, you know, if you had two, two things side by side, as you make the telescopes bigger and bigger, you're going to see that there are two things instead of one blurry thing. So astronomers want bigger telescopes because you collect more light and you have better angular resolution. Now we'll talk towards the end of today about why that's, that's true physically, but the Earth's atmosphere limits you. So we'll come back to that. Okay, so the thought collection is, if I make a telescope five times as big, how much more light do I collect? Okay, so you know we've already talked about angular measure, that the sun is 30 arc minutes in diameter. It, we don't actually talk about, since we need to know the distance of the sun, we don't talk about how many miles across the sun is. We talk about from the left side of the sun to the right side of the sun is an angle of half a degree, 30 arc minutes. And so, you know, we already said that the angular resolution gets better. So in this picture, a nearby car, the two headlights have a very large angular separation. A faraway car, the two headlights have a very small angular separation. And an even farther away car, we couldn't tell there were two headlights, we would just see light. And the headlights didn't change their distance from the left guy to the right guy. What changed is they got closer. So angular measure is what we see. And if we want to know what's truly happening, we have to know the distance. OK, so the limit to resolution comes from the fact that light is a wave, and waves interfere with each other. And most of the interference actually comes at the edge of the, of the mirror, so larger telescopes have um, greater resolution. So just think the wave nature of light says that bigger telescopes have better resolution. And the dirty secret that I have to remind you of a couple of times is that that only works if you don't have an Earth's atmosphere. So if you put the telescope in space, this would be absolutely true. Okay, well, we build big telescopes. There are lots of big telescopes in the world. We put big telescopes on mountaintops so that we're looking through less atmosphere. And we also put big telescopes where it doesn't rain very often. Because, and we put big telescopes where there aren't a lot of city lights. So you're not going to put a big telescope in Washington, D.C. There's lots of lights. It's very humid, and it's at low altitude. You're going to put a telescope near Tucson or on 14,000 feet on Mauna Kea in Hawaii or at 8,000 feet in Chile, where I just was, in the Canary Islands, places where you know, it never rains, where you're high, so you're only looking through, say, half the Earth's atmosphere, and where there's not a lot of city lights. There's two possible ways you can make a telescope. You can bend a mirror into the right shape, and we call that a reflecting telescope, or you can make a lens the right shape, and we call that a refracting telescope. And we'll discover that every, telescope, every big telescope made since 1920 is a reflecting telescope. So here's a picture of a venerable refracting telescope. I believe this is the 48-inch at Yerkes in, outside of Chicago. You can see that it's very classic. It almost looks like in the cartoons. It's got a 48-inch mirror up at the top. It's got this huge long tube that's tens of feet long. And you can see the human being for scale down at the bottom. And the reason refracting telescopes need to be very long is that 
lenses don't bend light very much. So if you want to bend light into a focus and you have a big lens, you need a very long tube. So there's going to be some problems that we'll discuss with lenses in just a moment. Reflecting telescopes come in a variety of designs, but the basic idea is light comes in the top, bounces off a specially shaped mirror at the bottom, bounces off another mirror in the middle, goes through a hole in the mirror at the bottom, and goes to your lenses. So the simplest of all these things is light goes in the top, the Newtonian focus in the center, light goes in the top, hits a mirror, and goes out the side. Now, it turns out that you can make a reflecting mirror basically as big as you want. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. So that's why since 1920, we don't bother with lens mirrors. Okay, well, I guess this is as good a time as any. The problem with lenses is it's really hard to get a huge, pure piece of glass because light is passing through. So any bubble in the mirror or any little defect in the mirror is bad. So that's number one. Number two is that since you can only hold a lens, think of your eyeglasses, you can only hold a lens from its side, it's going to sag. Now, your lens and your eyeball doesn't sag because it's so tiny. But if you had a lens 10 feet across and you're only holding it by the edge, it's going to sag in the middle. And all that hard work you did to make the perfect lens gets ruined. So you have to have perfect glass. You have to, you know, you can't really support it. Um, once it gets too big. And the third thing is, um, what is it? Oh, light traveling through the glass gets absorbed. So if you have a big old thick fat lens, you're going to lose some of the light. And every photon is precious. So we really don't want to do that. In a reflecting telescope, light does not go through the glass. It bounces off an aluminum layer or a silver layer or a gold layer at the surface, and we don't lose much light. Since, you can, since nothing is going through the, lens, through the mirror, we can support the mirror with as much steel as we want so it doesn't sag. So the picture at the right here shows a telescope. The sky is at the top, the primary mirror is at the bottom, and the secondary mirror is in the middle. So light comes through the top, down to the primary mirror, gets reflected, and goes into the second or hits the secondary mirror and is sent off in another direction, perhaps through the primary mirror. Okay, the simplest reflecting mirror that you can make is a parabola. And a parabolic mirror, if, parabol if parallel light is coming in, it gets sent to a focus. Oh, the other problem with lenses is that lenses focus blue light in a different place than they focus red light. But mirrors don't have that problem. Mirrors focus all colors of light in the same place. So, you know, for all those reasons, mirrors are better, and we can make them bigger, 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 bigger. So parallel light comes in, and the stars are really far away, so their light is parallel, and it's focused to a point. Okay, well, you can make reflecting telescopes in a variety of ways. But the basic idea remains the same. The top one is called a Cassegrain, and that's what most big telescopes are. Light is coming in parallel from the left in this case, bouncing off the mirror on the right, bouncing off a secondary mirror on the middle left, going through a hole in the primary, and hitting a detector. 
Now, you might wonder two things, right? One is why there's a hole in the mirror. Does that, does that make things smaller? Yeah, but if you have a mirror that's 25 feet across and you have a 12-inch hole in the middle, it doesn't really matter. And the second thing is there's that obstruction. But again, if you have a 25-foot across mirror and you have a 2-foot across secondary mirror, it doesn't really matter. Maybe you're losing 1% of the light. So pretty much all reflecting telescopes were built this way. The telescope on the right, the bluish guy, is the MMT telescope on Mount Hopkins. And that has a 6.5 meter, or about a 21-foot um, primary mirror. So since your lens in your eye is about a half an inch across, um, it's, or maybe even an inch across when all is said and done, you know, 25 feet or 20 feet compared to an inch, all that squared means that you're seeing really, really, really faint stuff compared to your eyeball. Um, I won't talk about the Gregorian. It's just a similar thing in spirit. The picture on the bottom is the Mount Graham telescope, the LBT, and that has two 8.4-meter mirrors on the same mount. And that can operate, so you have the light-collecting power of two 8.4-meter telescopes, but you have the resolution power from the left side of the left mirror to the right side of the right mirror. And that was the reason this was done. So we can see extremely fine detail. OK, we've talked about all this. Why do we prefer refractors over refractors? And you want, an, you want a mirror or a lens that reflects all the, or that moves all the light to make an image and moves all the light of all the different colors to the same place. You make, want the biggest one you can possibly make. So mirrors win. OK, here's a couple of pictures. This is the Keck telescopes in Hawaii. They, each primary mirror is actually made up of 36 or 32 segments, but they're 10 meters across, so 30 to 32 feet across. The two Kecks are near each other, but 99% of the time they do not work as one telescope. They work as two separate telescopes. These are the biggest individual telescopes in the world, except for the OBT on Mount Graham, which is the biggest. But the Kecks have been working for a long time. So they are the dominant pair of telescopes in the world. OK, now that's all well and good, but we have to talk about the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere is a real pain. The Earth's atmosphere is a pain for a couple of reasons. On this slide, the reason is what we see in the top plot. We're plotting atmospheric opacity. And so 100% opacity means no photons make it to the ground. 0% opacity means all the photons make it to the ground. The colored um, rainbow is the optical. So you can see that the optical is in a low opacity region. All the photons to first order get down. The ultraviolet, the x-ray, and the gamma rays the first order, no photons get down. Then we move out to the right into the infrared. And there are some infrared windows where we can see lots of photons from the sky. There are some places where we see no photons from the sky in the kind of microwave region. And then we get to the radio, and it's, the sky is perfectly transparent till we get to the far radio when it's opaque. So obviously, if you want to observe in the opaque regions, you need to be in a transparent window. The only other choice you have if you're not in a transparent window, is to fly into space. So the bottom half of this slide shows that if you want to study gamma rays and x-rays and ultraviolet, 
Some ultraviolet makes it through, but most ultraviolet doesn't. You need to go into space. If you want to study a large fraction of infrared, you have to go into space. So some wavelengths of light, if we want to see, you know, if we want to understand the physics of celestial objects at those wavelengths, we have to go into space. Now, we go into space in the optical. We try to avoid it if we can because it's so expensive. You know, the Hubble Space Telescope um, cost basically a couple of billion dollars, and every time they serviced it, it cost another couple of billion dollars. So in the 25 years of the Hubble Space Telescope, we might be up to 10 billion. A telescope like that on Earth might cost one million or 10 million dollars, and a million is a thousandth of a billion. So the biggest telescopes on the ground for optical cost maybe 50 or 100 million, which is a tenth of one space flight. But the thing you gain is that the, other, the atmosphere does something else bad. Okay, and I guess this is a good time to talk about it. If you think of our Earth's atmosphere, you know, you see the stars twinkle. So twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder where you are. Why do the stars twinkle? The stars twinkle because if you think of the atmosphere as being a river of air, some pieces of the atmosphere are thicker air than other pieces. So when you go from thick air to thin air to thick air to thin air, the image dances around, and that's twinkling. And that wrecks the resolution. You, you imagine if you're taking a picture of everybody in room N210, and you're taking a one-minute-long exposure, and nobody moves, it's all good. But if everybody during that one minute changed chairs 15 times, we'd get this big blurry photo and it would be useless. And so if you're taking a very long exposure on the Earth, the, you get the blurriest photo that the atmosphere allows at that time. If you take an instantaneous exposure, you get, you know, you get whatever you get. But the problem is, of course, you don't want to take an instantaneous exposure. You want to see really, really faint stuff. So you expose for very long periods of time. So basically, the atmosphere blurs your image. So no matter what physics says, we have a lower limit to how good we can be. And that's caused by our Earth's atmosphere. But we want to do better. So Hubble Space Telescope, even though it's a small telescope, has 10 times better resolution than a typical telescope on the Earth. And at the end of today, we'll talk about how you can defeat this on the Earth. So basically, on the Earth, we do a little bit of ultraviolet astronomy. So we go down just a little bit bluer than the human eye can see. We do optical astronomy. We do a little bit of infrared astronomy. And we do radio astronomy. Everything else we have to do in space. Space is expensive. If something breaks in space, you can't go out and fix it. Hubble Space Telescope was designed to fix it. So, and we sent five servicing missions, which was wonderful. The problem is Hubble Space Telescope is in such a low Earth orbit that you only see the sky half the time in any orbit. So you want to put a telescope really, really far away. The James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be launched in 2018, is going to be a million miles away. And we are not going to be able to send astronauts there to service it. So if something breaks, that's the end of that particular something. OK, well, we don't just observe in the optical. We want to observe in all these different wavelengths. And now the wavelength nature of light will make it easier to make radio telescopes. If you've got a big old fat wave, 
you don't have to have a smooth mirror. And I'll be showing you that sometime in class in the next couple of weeks when I do the infrared demonstration. So a piece of metal that does not look smooth enough to shave by in the optical will be very smooth in the infrared. So this is the world's largest telescope, the world's largest single dish. This is the Arecibo telescope, and it's in a limestone sink in Puerto Rico. And it's about 1,000 feet across. The thing at the top is the secondary mirror, which is supported by huge cables. And that means we could collect an enormous amount of radio light, which turns out to be really important, the 1,000 feet across part, because for any given size telescope, the resolution depends on the wavelength. So if you have a one-foot-across radio telescope and a one-foot-across optical telescope and a one-foot-across ultraviolet telescope, the ultraviolet telescope has the best resolution because the wavelength is the smallest, and the radio telescope has the worst resolution because it's got huge waves. Another way of saying that is we can make radio telescopes out of chicken wire. So you can go to the local feed store at Fort Lowell and Dodge and buy chicken wire and attach electricity to it and have a perfectly fine radio telescope. The radio photons will think that's a perfectly smooth piece of glass. But obviously that's not going to work for an optical telescope. Okay, so what do we do about the infrared and ultraviolet? Well, I said you go into space. Spitzer on the right was an um, ultra, was a infrared telescope and part of the reason it's in that orbit is because nothing gets through to the ground, but part of it is it has to be super cold. But that's really expensive. So we have somewhere in between what we might call low-cost ground-based telescopes and high-cost radio um, orbiting telescopes. This SOFIA is a 747 with all the seats ripped out. That's been specially designed. It's got a, a big old hole cut in the side, and the telescope sticks out the hole. And it flies up at about 30,000, 40,000 feet above most of the water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere, which eats a lot of the infrared photons. And you can actually do um, astronomy from SOFIA. So SOFIA is an ongoing NASA mission. It's been going on for several years. It's expensive, but it's not as expensive as Spitzer was. Because, you know, space launches are basically, at least to very round numbers, a billion dollars. And the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the size of the MMT, six meters across, is going to fly in October of 2018 by congressional mandate. So the schedule better not slip. And it um, is something, not even counting the launch, it's up to about eight billion. And so the launch is gonna be another billion. So Sophia is probably half a billion. Um, I don't know if that counts the 747 or not. The 747 might have been donated. But, um, and a big ground-based telescope might be 50 or 100 million. So we go from you know, 100 million, you, know, you shouldn't be impressed anymore by 100 billion because Powerball was just a billion. So Powerball today could have bought you a Spitzer and it can buy you 10 Sophias or five Sophias and 10 of the biggest ground-based telescopes in the world. So if you win Powerball, please consider the poor astronomer. Okay, well, X-ray telescopes are a bit more problematic. X-rays don't reflect very easily because if you send an X-ray perpendicular to a mirror, it just goes right through. It goes right through your body. 
So we have to play tricks with X-ray telescopes to do what we call grazing incidents. But when all is said and done, we can make mirrors. They're really fancy. They're really expensive. And we fly X-ray telescopes. We can't detect X-rays from the ground. X-rays from outer space were first detected about 40 years ago with sounding rockets that go up to about 100 miles, spend about five minutes at altitude, and then go back to the Earth. We had to get above the Earth's atmosphere before we knew that X-rays were coming from exotic objects in outer space. The sun emits some X-rays, but remember, the sun is a hot iron rod. Most of the light comes out in the optical. The sun emits, we can detect the sun in x-rays because it's close. But most of the strong x-ray emitters are very exotic objects like neutron stars and black holes and um, white dwarfs. And once again, they need to be above the atmosphere. Similarly, for gamma ray telescopes, and it takes incredible trickery or incredible physics, incredible engineering of physics to fly a gamma ray telescope. There are gamma ray telescopes in orbit right now from the United States, from the European Space Agency, and I think from Japan. But basically the idea is we can use the laws of light to bend light to make an image. So bending light in an arbitrary way doesn't make an image. We have to bend light just right. Well, once we've bent light just right, we make an image and we can detect these things. So for the gamma ray telescope in space, we need two things. One is we need the proper shaped mirror and the second thing is we need a detector that's sensitive to gamma rays. So your cell phone camera will not take a gamma ray picture. Your cell phone camera actually might, if we, if we fooled around with it, might be able to take an x-ray picture. Um, silicon is very sensitive to x-rays. But basically, your cell phone camera is built for the optical and maybe a little bit of the infrared and a little bit of the ultraviolet. So think of your cell phone as being an um, optical detector. Astronomers take very similar devices that are in your cell phone, but they pick the best of the best, and they, make, they optimize them so that more than 90% or 95% of all photons are detected. And all of your cell phone cameras are pretty inefficient. They're, they're pretty good, but they're inefficient. And they also have blemishes, which are hidden from you in software. Your cell phone or your DSLR has an enormous amount of software that makes things look prettier than they really are. But the same thing is true. We, for gamma ray telescopes, we need a device that's sensitive to collecting gamma rays. For X-ray telescopes, we need a device that's sensitive to collecting X-rays. So similarly for ultraviolet, similarly for optical, similarly for infrared. And each of those devices is a different kind of technology. Okay. So exploiting the fact that light is a wave, we can build big telescopes in another way. And this is most easily done when the wavelength is really big. So it's most easily done with wavelengths. This is a picture, I think, of the VLA in near Socorro, New Mexico, so near Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the VLA has all of these. It has 20 or 30 dishes. And these dishes can be electrically combined to be one gigantic telescope, say, 5 or 10 or 20 miles across. So that's really good because you gain resolution, but you do lose one thing. If you have, imagine that you have a normal mirror. 
you could make a multiple, a multiple set of mirrors out of it by taking a magic marker and blackening in part of the mirror. So now instead of having one big mirror, you have 20 little mirrors with black in between. That's kind of what this is. So you gain resolution by having these radio telescopes 10 miles across. Um, but what you lose is photons. So it takes a really long exposure time compared to building a radio telescope 20 miles across. No one is going to build a radio telescope 20 miles across ever, except maybe someday on the backside of the moon. But we don't have technology to get us to the moon, so that's pie in the sky stuff. So we can use radio telescopes and join them together electrically. So join them together, exploiting the wave nature of light to make it as if it were a gigantic telescope with black magic marker in between the, the telescopes. And this is called interferometry. And the holy grail of interferometry at the moment is we want to be able to do this in the optical. The problem is that the wavelength of optical light is substantially smaller than the wavelength of radio light. That means the problem is substantially harder. We have three groups, actually, at the U of A that are working very hard on optical interferometry with our telescopes, because that would get rid of the blurring of the Earth's atmosphere. Or that would at least, with getting rid of the blurring of the Earth's atmosphere, that would make the resolution as good as space-based resolution. So radio waves, uh, as I said before, a radio telescope the same size as an optical telescope looks really blurry because of the long wavelength of light. But if I combine two radio telescopes a half a mile across, it looks really sharp. And so I can look at, uh, at highest possible resolution the most um, interesting radio sources in the sky. And this is how radio interferometry works. Basically, you link two telescopes as if they were one giant telescope, but they don't have the collecting area of one giant telescope. They have the collecting area of the two telescopes. And if light weren't a wave, we wouldn't be able to do this. Okay, there's one, let's see, one slide 35 or 37. Um, the next topic, I guess we have two more topics to go for today. One is there's something even bigger than putting a whole bunch of radio telescopes in New Mexico and having them 10 miles across. We can put a radio telescope in Tucson. We can put another radio telescope in Chile. We can put another radio telescope in Antarctica. And we can put another radio telescope in Canada. And using atomic clocks, we can link them together electrically. And we get a radio telescope the size of the Earth. And of course, that's phenomenal. We're going to be able to probe the centers of, or the very close to black holes that way. And this just shows you some places where radio telescopes have joined together. But the most interesting one now is called the Event Horizon Telescope, which has a radio telescope in Antarctica, one in Chile, one in Hawaii, one in Mexico, one in Arizona, and I think one in Canada. And so that's basically giving us the whole diameter of the Earth. Now, the typical question that people ask is, let's put a radio telescope in space. Well, that would work too. Um, but what you really want, you don't want a radio telescope 200 miles above the Earth because that doesn't buy you very much. You want a radio telescope a million miles away. So someday, maybe we'll have that. So because light is a wave, we're, we can make these separate radio telescopes across a whole hemisphere work together 
as if they were one giant radio telescope. Okay, well, we've got to get rid of the blurring. It's wonderful to have that, but we need to get rid of the blurring. The blurring in the optical is much worse than the blurring in the infrared, which is much worse than the blurring in the radio. So at radio, we, don't, we pretty much don't worry about the blurring. But the optical, twinkle, twinkle, little star comes back in again. Okay, so what we do is we do something called adaptive optics. And I'll, I'll be explaining to you in a moment how that works. So what we do is we have a, a mirror that measures how distorted the Earth's atmosphere is at any moment. So we have to do this really fast. We do it a thousand times a second. We measure how distorted the Earth's atmosphere, we bend the mirror to correct for that distortion. And we do that a thousand times a second. When you do that, you go from the picture in the middle, which is without adaptive optics, to the picture on the right with adaptive optics. And in fact, starting on Sunday or Saturday, our adaptive optics group down in Chile, where I just was, will be using their AO system to do imaging. So if you think of it, adaptive optics, you measure how the Earth's atmosphere is distorted, and you correct it. If it takes too long to correct it, um, you lose. So the way I like to think about it is I go to the water fountain. And at least all water fountains that I know of at the U of A, you push the button down, the water starts going, you've got your water bottle collecting the water, and then the water goes up or down. And so you have to move your water bottle up or down or else it splatters all over your hand. Well, if you notice that it's going up and down fast enough, you can move your water bottle up and down fast enough, and you can never get splattered. And that's the basic idea here. If you, if you can measure the blurring of the Earth's atmosphere fast enough, and of course the goal is, I want to do it even faster. But if you can do it fast enough, you can make the picture in the center turn into the picture on the right. Okay, so basically the picture on the right is only blurred due to the laws of light. And so the picture on the right can be as good or better as the Hubble Space Telescope gives us. But the Hubble Space Telescope does this every day. Every picture the Hubble Space Telescope gets is perfect. Whereas we have to work really hard to get the picture on the right, which is perfect. So adaptive optics is the holy grail because then we'll be able to do it from the ground. We, we know how to do it, but it's not in everyday operation 365 days a year yet. But if we have adaptive optics 365 days a year, we can build gigantic telescopes on Earth that we can't afford to launch into space. And then we get per perfect pictures with enormous light gathering power. And one way we measure what's going on with adaptive optics is we fire lasers up into the sky and the lasers make little artificial stars. And that works except these particular lasers are really expensive and the um, Defense Space Command gets really upset when you point lasers into the sky because then you might be blinding a military satellite. So you actually have to tell the Defense Command in advance where you want to point. But that's a minor problem. We, we can learn to live with that. And of course, you can see quite trivially, I think, that the image on the right is a whole lot better than the image in the center. So interferometry will buy you resolution. Adaptive optics will buy you resolution. And we're working very hard. We have working both, but they don't work 365 days a year, 20, 24 hours a day. That's another reason to put telescopes in space. 
we don't have this crazy day-night cycle. Okay, this is just another example of going to the blurry image on the left with the picture you get with your telescope to the unblurry image on the right. I won't worry about the details. So what we've seen today is how you make a telescope, why you use um, mirrors instead of lenses for the primary segment of the telescope, why some telescopes must be in space, why it's good to have telescopes in space, why it's good to have telescopes on the ground, what the monetary and diffraction-limited trade-offs are, and how we can fix some of these things. So gamma rays, we have to observe from space. X-rays, we have to observe from space. Ultraviolet, we have to observe from space. Optical, we have the choice, and we can build bigger telescopes in the ground than we come in space. Infrared, we sort of have the choice, but some things we have to put in space. Radio, we can observe from the ground. And long wave radio, we have to put in space. OK, so that's the end of talking about telescopes. Um, I'm going to sign off and give it to Tom Fleming, and we'll put it on Panopto, and I'll send you all an email.